You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So with that, I'd like to introduce our final Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders for the winter quarter. And I feel very lucky to be able to do this introduction because um, Polly and Liz represent two of the most extraordinary global information technology companies in the world. Liz, who is one of the main partners at, at Accenture, um, and in fact is a global man managing director there, has worked with clients around the world. And Accenture, if you don't know it, is one of the most resilient and entrepreneurial technology companies in the entire world. I've been admiring their work since 77, 78, and it's a company that continues to reinvent itself and do fabulous things uh, for companies and clients to improve their performance. And then we have Salesforce.com, a newer entrant into the world, but certainly one that has really changed the way that we all think about software. And many of you are probably keeping your customer relationship management data in a little database from Salesforce. So without any further ado, I want to turn it over to Liz, who will be inter interviewing Polly, um, because the two of them have lots to share, and I promised that I'd make my remarks brief. So they'll do theirs, and then we'll turn it over to questions. Thanks, everybody. Let's welcome them to Stanford. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom, and thanks to all of you. Boy, this is, um, I haven't been in front of a classroom in a long time. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I have a daughter who just started in college, and I've, um, you know, sat through some classes last year when she was picking, but I never was on this side, and I must say it's a little bit intimidating. But anyway, hopefully we'll, as the last people, we'll, we'll do well. So um, I thought what we could do to get started is um, both Polly and I have had a, a fairly long background in working with both startups and big companies. And so, Polly, maybe what you could do to kick off is kind of give us a, give some overview of what you've done. Cause, mm -hmm. um, starting McDonnell Douglas IBM and then working all, all the way through Alphabox into uh, Salesforce to set some context. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we do at Accenture, just to put some context around entrepreneurship and innovation and things, and then we can go from there if that's okay. Oh, perfect. So I get to ask you a couple hard questions? Absolutely. That'll be good. Anything. All right. So um, I'm Polly Sumner, and I've been in the technology industry um, for 30 years. And I'm probably the only person that I know who gets reported as being 32 years old on um, Yahoo. So don't Google me. That site is wrong. That is not actually my age. Anyway, um, I uh, had the opportunity to start with IBM many years ago. And uh, I spent four years there. And I guess I kind of took away a few things. The first one was, was that I was a big believer that customers were going to uh, shape the companies of the future. And then understanding the path to the customer was going to be the next set of leadership uh, that was going to be required in the business. And I kind of looked at the 21st century and said, every leader of every company is going to have to understand that. So I um, worked in the small systems division there. It's kind of funny that now I'm at Salesforce. And our claim to fame has been small and medium-sized businesses and the democratization of enterprise software around being able to deliver it in a new way so everybody gets benefit. And then um, I wanted to specialize in an industry, and I went into telecommunications. And I went to work for a time-sharing company called McDonnell Douglas and McAuto. And uh, we really did mainframe applications, but delivered them over what was then sort of the same way that applications at Salesforce are being delivered today, which is over a, a thin client. And we didn't have browsers then, but we basically hosted those applications for um, companies. Then I did a couple of startups. I think one big theme in my career has been not to be afraid to take risk. 
and not to be afraid of failure. So we can talk a bit about more that, um, later about that. And um, those didn't turn out to be the biggest bang things in the world, but they did turn out to be really great learning experiences for me. And in the late 80s, I had the opportunity to go work at Cisco and stay in networking technologies and telephony, which is one path out of computer science into the job career world, or to go back into information management systems and applications that served businesses. And I chose Oracle, and I spent 12 years there and had uh, three or four different uh, management positions there and was kind of an entrepreneur inside of Oracle, coming up with new business plans, ideas for new products, new industries, things like that. And then I left and went to work for, um, as a, a president and CEO of a small company. That's where I met Tom Byers here at Stanford. He was on my board. And um, that was an entrepreneurial company for the first wave of web-based analytics. And when the dot-com bubble crashed, we sold that to IBM. It is now a very important and significant part of the WebSphere offering and IBM's whole information management suite. And then I went and I said, i got to get out of technology. I'm burned out. And this happens. <laughs> But unfortunately or fortunately, some friends of mine in the investment community wouldn't let that happen. And I spent four years consulting for Warburg Pincus. They're a large private equity firm in, um, the North, in New York, based in New York. And um, I had the opportunity to work with people like John Seely Brown and I. We were on a board of a company together. Um, and help them both with not just what they would invest with, but what's the health of the um, companies that they were investing in. Could the developers develop? Could the salespeople really sell? Uh, was the product truly innovative? And was it a product, or was it just a feature of somebody else's product? And then um, I joined Salesforce. And I've been there for about two years. And uh, I'm the chief adoption officer there. When you run a subscription business, it's really important that your customers renew and that they adopt and love your software. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a different paradigm. Our service has to be used, otherwise people cancel. And we don't make any money if they cancel. So one thing that uh, we have in our company is a very, very important focus on um, customer success. And I have that piece of the business. And right. Liz and I met. Um, quite a few times, and I guess right. you're no stranger to us, and I'm certainly yeah. no stranger to Accenture, so right. maybe right. you talk a bit about you. Yeah, so um, unlike you, I've been at Accenture, I've had one job for 25 years, or almost 26 years, so I'm like the fossil at Accenture right now. So um, I feel like I'm looking at a room full of our new people, because you guys all look just like the people who come in and start with us, and then there's me sitting in the front. So, um, But you know, 25, 26 years ago, I, I have an engineering degree from Ohio State, an aerospace engineering degree, and I have uh, moved throughout a number of companies. So similar in the sense that I've been with Accenture the whole time, but as a consultant, you end up working at a whole host of different companies. So um, I've worked at you know, government companies, and I've worked at a lot of the telecommunications companies here in the United States. I've worked at a number of high-tech companies here in the Valley. Uh, last week, I was at Warner Brothers. Um, I've been at Pitney Bowes. I've been at most of the electronics, high-tech, and communications companies here in the United States large and small over my career. And I started doing mostly technology-based work, um, doing mostly mainframe work, then moving to client-server and moving all through that, and really um, working with my clients to develop mostly customer-based applications, mm -hmm. CRM applications, which is how I came to know Salesforce um, throughout my career, and then moving more into strategy and looking at data services and new product entry and things like that. And today, I have responsibility for all of our consulting work, so our strategy CRM work, for all of our clients in communications, high-tech, and media and entertainment globally. So I spend a lot of time here in Silicon Valley. I love it out here because there's so much, um, new, there's so much new thinking and new ideas. And the thing that I can do is, you know, most of our clients are, Fortune, are the Fortune 200 clients globally. And so 
they may not be spending quite as much time here in the valley, but what they love about um, you and me and the people who do spend time out here is being able to capture the ideas and all the new technology and then talk about how to make that practical to what they're doing in their very large, industrial, somewhat mundane, <laughs> but very profitable businesses, right? So, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And, and for those of you who don't know Accenture, we were um, a long, long time ago, probably when you knew us, Arthur Anderson, and then we were the management consulting division, and then Anderson Consulting, and then serendipitously we got a divorce from them, and then they went under, and now we're Accenture, and we don't have Tiger Woods anymore either. So, <laughs> whether he apologizes or not, we went to an elephant. And somebody was looking at the elephant the other day and said, you know, $6 million a year for Tiger Woods and an elephant, we don't have to pay the elephant and he's never going to cheat on us. And if he does, who cares? So anyway, <laughs> and look at all the mileage we're getting. So anyway, um, that's kind of my background. But I think, you know, similar in the sense that I've had exposure to a lot of different companies, mostly large companies. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, since you've been at a range of companies, um, talk about how entrepreneurship how do you see that play out in large companies versus small companies? And the reason I ask is because I'm thinking, based on what Tina and the folks have told me, is all of you are sitting in here probably maybe want to go out and start your own company and, and uh, do it all on your own and probably think, why would I ever want to go to uh, AT&T or to Verizon or to Cisco, or even Cisco would be sort of way out there um, uh, in terms of not being that mundane state. But, but I see a lot of entrepreneurship within those clients. So talk about your experience in doing that. Yeah, I think that, um, I agree with you. I think that we start out so much, or when we think about it, I talk to kids and the rest of it, and they all think that being an entrepreneur is about starting your own business. And I do believe that's a big piece of it. But inside of big companies, there's a lot of entrepreneurialism that goes on as well. And it happens not just in products, and I think a lot of people think you've got to be an engineer to be an entrepreneur, but there's an awful lot of innovation that happens around business processes that are very different, thing, right. um, around um, the way people communicate and collaborate together. That's another um, big area. Um, it's kind of interesting that you know we don't think about entrepreneurialism in finance because we think of finance as being like something that's terribly regulated and you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. But isn't automatic bill pay or self-service? I mean, that's entrepreneurialism in the finance function. Right. I mean, PayPal, we probably in Silicon Valley think of them as a technology company, but they were entrepreneurs about how payments worked. Right. So I personally have seen a lot of entrepreneurialism inside of small companies as well as in, inside of, of um, really big companies. Um, a simple example I will use from the um, Oracle days was um, we had, everybody thinks all the entrepreneurialism comes from products. Well, you get a lot of that concepts and a lot of new product ideas and, and innovation from your customers as well. And right. I personally would argue that if you listen to your customers, you'll find more opportunities for innovation from them um, combined with what you know and your new ideas. And that's part of the magic recipe for success. So I was running um, a, a team in Washington, D.C., and we were not the market share winners at the time. A company across the bay in Sybase really had, was trumping our, you know, you know what's in front of, uh, in a couple of key areas in the business and um, in the Navy and in some very uh, interesting applications in the Department of Defense. And it was around their entrepreneurialism and their thought leadership around being able to do something which we just had never thought about from a database perspective would be important. 
And I remember I went back and presented to the product teams and they said, well, why would you want that? And the concept was longitude and latitude in the database, being able to search on longitude and latitude and having an attribute that we right. would keep track of. So I went away, they all said, nah, 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 I don't want to do that. You know, this is like, what's that all about? And I went away and I thought about it a little more. And I went out and collected four or five business applications or innovations in the marketplace that couldn't happen unless longitude and latitude were available in the database. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and I said what they were. So I don't know if you've drawn the conclusion of what these are, but you can't find a cell phone without longitude and latitude. You can't find a ship on the sea. You can't find an airplane in the air. Today, you can't, so these were all applications that were technologies that were nascent at the time. We just had car phones, right? Right. right. And now when we think about the power of being able to pinpoint somebody, this is pre-Bluetooth, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> all it took was the getting the idea that longitude and latitude would be two very important intersection points for us to be able to track in a database. And when I look, or I can't tell you because I would, can't release things about Oracle, but you know, when you think about all of the applications, all of the innovation, and all of the technology, and the way we use products and services today that have been enabled by something as simple as having satellites that can pinpoint longitude and latitude with devices on the face of the Earth, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what about um, when you were at Oracle, what, what would you say, how was entrepreneurship encouraged or innovation encouraged at Oracle or at McDonnell Douglas or IBM within a big company versus when you were at Alpha Box or advising at Warburg Pincus? Maybe talk a little bit about that. I think it's kind of a culture, my personal experience okay. is, is that, and by the way, I left some companies because I didn't fit. Okay. When I said failure, those were my own personal failures because I had selected to devote my time in my life, the one thing you can never have more of, there's only one, one currency, and that's the number of hours and minutes that that's are going right. to end up in your life. And so when you think about that and you make a decision to go somewhere and it doesn't turn out right, that's, that's almost in my book by definition a failure because you just didn't quite match up right. It doesn't have to be you know, a personal one that you say, oh, I'm no good, and it doesn't have to be that company's crap, but somehow those two things didn't match up. And so I think that the culture that suits me personally, and I think most of the entrepreneurs that I've seen in big companies, is no idea is a dumb idea. Right. And that sounds pretty, I think you get that instilled in you when you grow up. And maybe it comes from your parents, um, think about the time you went to a class and you got really inspired about a subject to where you never even focused on the amount of time that it was taking you to do the homework associated with that class. That's because you actually were really, really interested in that and the idea was a really good, you know, it's like no idea was a dumb idea. You could think about it as much as you wanted to, etc. And so I think that companies, the managers, the people in the industry, and if I was going out interviewing for a job, I'd make sure that I was checking out whether that company was interested in new ideas. Because I guarantee you that you guys know a heck of a lot more about what's going to happen in this world than I do. And companies are looking for you to come and talk to them about your ideas. That's a little difficult to do in an interview, but I never ever interview a person to come to work in a company without asking them, hey, what's an idea that you've had that you think could work here? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, why would you hire a new person? Right, right. I asked, I was interviewing somebody for a media job the other day, and mm -hmm. I said, uh, tell me how we're going to make $100 million at Warner Brothers next year. And she kind of went, what? I said, well, we, you know, it's challenging from a consulting perspective to 
drive monetization of non anything that's not theatrical. So you you know you read about Avatar making so much money or Sherlock Holmes or whatever, but you know if you think about it from a non-theatrical, non-creative perspective, take that away and think about Salesforce or finance and performance management or strategy. You know how do you make a lot of money out of that? And I mean it's hard, yeah. but that's the kind of thing you got to be able to to answer, right? Yeah. And sometimes it takes a while to kind of come to the conclusion, but, but it's out there. And I think if you look at the people that get promoted in companies, the ones that venture capitalists want to invest in as individual entrepreneurs or the serial entrepreneurs, it's all because they haven't been afraid to take risk around an idea yeah, that they has, really believed in. Right. And so that's a really, I think, you know, I'd ask a company. I mean, I've asked every company I've gone to work for, can you tell me who got promoted around here based upon an innovative idea? And that's how you find out whether that lives in their culture or not. Well, that's a great one. Now, how many times have you failed when you've done that, and what have you learned? Whew, boy, I got a lot of them. <laughs> um, I, um, as a CEO, I, I don't think all, any of us really saw the dot-com thing coming, but I actually um, uh, did a distribution agreement with a company um, uh, who was selling our products and services, our, our service, into the marketplace and did not instill in them the discipline to um, only present one use case to the customer. So we ended up in that mode of trial and test and trial and test, and we didn't have one unified use case that we could scale. And if I had kept the sales organization, only sold direct, evaluated those use cases by myself so that I could find one that had a multiplication effect in it, and really be able to drive that home to get to the next stage of the company without having to go for more money or without having to count on anything else, I think that's it. So for me, that one was didn't maintain close enough control on my destiny, my own destiny of my own, of our company's own. The second one was not really being rigorous around what was actually um, you know, possible and staying with that focus. And um, so I think then you get a kind of a perfect storm and things change you know, right. very quickly. Right. Um, another one was... Well, could, before yep. you move on, just... So if you were... So a year later, mm -hmm. before you move on to your next one, a year later, if you're looking back on that, what, what, what did you think of it a year later? Good or bad? Um, for you. For me, it was great because I learned something that I can carry with me forever and I've never done it again. Oh, well, okay. But, I mean, you know, at a personal level, yeah. that was it. I mean, I learned a lesson. They all come with a price, positive or negative. Right. We did not go out of business. Okay, good. But we definitely had to adjust our strategy and go forward, and we probably could have been a bigger company a year earlier, which might have given us the financial wherewithal to then withstand what was a cataclysmic financial event when the markets fell apart in the dot-com bubble. And, so, and that was sort of... Um what, about 15 years into mm -hmm. your career? So mm -hmm. uh, did your thinking around that sort of failure and your ability to do it, had, did it change? I mean, from, you know, from, I'm, I'm assuming when you first start, it's hard, right? But when did you get to the point where you felt like, oh, it's probably, you know, I can fail and I can recover and I can fail and I can recover? Um, I actually think that starts when you're a little kid. Oh, good. Uh, I, I mean, that. I'm dead serious. So. I mean, if you play sports and you try really hard and your team still loses, that's, you go back out on the field the next time, do you try harder the next practice? I mean, I think we forget and we kind of separate our business life from all the core lessons that we learn when we're children. So, you know, I, I actually think that you, you kind of learn that the first time you, you flunk a spelling bee or something like that, <laughs> and then you have to turn around and keep on going. Yeah. And some of us are more resilient. And when I look at 
um, I hate to say this, but when I look at some of my friends or um, uh, other people that are my age, I think what's taken the spark out of their life is that they've forgotten that, you know, even when you fail the first time and you win the second time, the win is a lot sweeter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is much sweeter. How many of you, uh, like, I mean, you think about it. I mean, I went, I played sports all during high school, and we had one team in basketball that we just could not beat. And I mean, we finally beat them in, like, the, our senior year, and then we lost in the championships. So maybe it was a little bit like on a much different scale, the Canadians and the Americans <laughs> in the Hockey League, right? But that's the point. So how sweet, I mean, how did those guys feel when they went home after they lost to the oh. United States team? Yeah. And then they came back and they had the wherewithal to beat them. I mean, that that's going down. What did I see? 85% of the Canadian household yeah. population watched that game? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, that's pretty incredible. We, nobody has 85% of a nation doing anything. No, all 33 million <laughs> of them. all at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so I guess I look at it and say, you know, part of the reason why I can't and maybe all these failures don't come right off my, you know, think yeah. about it, is because I've tried, gone back, tried again. And that failure has turned into a stepping stone for something that was a win. Yeah, and I try to instill that in people. I'm going to contrast my experience because I, and it would be interesting if you, we're going to have plenty of time for questions here. You know, I was one of those folks who never, I, I didn't do as many sports, but I never failed when I was growing up, right? So straight A's, great grades, everything went fine. And I bet there's some of you, maybe don't have to raise your hands, who are like that here, right? And everything's going, you know, first few years at work, top performance, everything. And in, I really wish I would have failed earlier because the first one was so hard, right? Because you have nothing to fall back on in terms of, you know, how do you recover from that? But when I look at the failures I've had at work since that time and re reflect back on them, I think those are some of the best things that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. So maybe the lesson, you know, you guys need to all flunk this class or something. Oh, but you get to take it again, right? And again and again. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, I know you and Tina had talked a little bit about teams and building teams. And how do you, I mean, what's your secret sauce in building good teams? Because I've talked, you know, I've met a lot of people who work with you and stuff. And I mean, Salesforce, let's be honest, if you guys go down there, it's a great place. It's a lot of fun to work at and you've had huge success. So that's going to attract people. But tell me about your personal philosophy on that. Well, you know, when I started um, and uh, years ago and the rest of it, 30 years ago in the business, you were measured as a person and you thought of your success based upon how many people worked for you. And I tried to think about this about two months ago. I was doing a thing with some interns at Salesforce. So they asked me, well, when do you think in your 30-year career that that changed? And we don't do work in a hierarchical way anymore. Everybody, I mean, look at the manufacturing industry. It requires the ODM marketplace in silicon. It requires, you know, a whole different kind of distribution chain. So the way that we manufacture things, the way we distribute them, all companies today are made up of teams. And I think social networking and some other technologies are really driving this even more. Certainly the Internet's been a big facilitator of teams. So where maybe before I would have thought about... Um, more about the cohesiveness of a team. Today, teams are like free agents in a, um, you know, I'm on sports analogies today, but they're like free agents. Because you, if you don't like the team that you're working on with, you can go work with another team. 
So in order to, you have to make that team fun, I guess, right. is, is part of it. People have to want to belong to the team. And I know that each one of you probably has had an experience where you really wanted into a team and you needed to go get some more credentials to get into it or you needed to figure out like how to do that. But today, teams, I think the key ingredient to, to building really great teams is transparency and communication, focusing on results, uh, rewards, and really great... Um, communication and this once again that same concept that no idea is a bad idea it's about listening and um, really you know uh, making that be a positive experience for all the participants and, and how do you work that because you you guys are very global and your teams are global mm-hmm. um, how, how does that transcend you know across outside of the United States because I, I, I tend to find that the transparency and the openness here in the U.S., everybody kind of embraces that I leave the U.S. especially going to Asia and that very much changes so how are you engendering that in other places? Well, I think we try to do it. I'll be very honest with you. It's still a really important thing, I think, to look the other person in the eye. I mean, it's very difficult to not know the person. I mean, I think we can Twitter back and forth. We can do email and the rest of it. But you have a different feeling when you know who's reading that on the other end. So there's something psychologically, and I'm not a sociologist or know anything about that, but there's something about meeting the other person. So there's some kind of, that's why I think video is such a great thing. At least you get an idea of who the person is on the other end. Um, So I do believe very much in the face-to-face piece of it, uh, however you do that. I think that... um, We use technology. I think there's some fabulous technologies. I mean, telepresence, all that kind of stuff. Um, Obviously, the internet. Um, I believe very strongly in writing skills. In my career, we went through a thing. I went to a liberal arts school outside of Philadelphia. Uh, All the the college was Swarthmore and all the professors. And so we were very academic in our high school. There was no question about it. And writing was a big piece of it. And then I got into the workforce, and we went down this path of voicemail. And speaking became the way that people communicated. And so I started to hire people in 10, 15 years, out, uh, 10 years after I got out of high school, and there were actually people who couldn't write. Think about how important it is today to be able to write an effective email that somebody who does not speak in your native language, who has never met you, and who lives in a different corner of the world than you, how clarity of writing has become so important, and we really, I think there's a whole gap of people, and if you haven't really focused on your writing skill, you should try it. Try it out on some friend of yours whose parents or somebody else will write a message and then have them tell you back what you said. It'll be a very interesting experience, very interesting experience. So I do think that the the written part of it. And then the last thing is something that was very different time-wise in my career than I think in yours. I mentioned earlier that I believe very strongly that understanding the customer, the route to the customer, and that markets were going to become pull markets rather than in my career when I came out of high school, uh, college and grad school, it was all about push markets. We made products, we pushed those products onto the market. Um, is that um, you got to understand the big growth areas of the world. And sometime in the first 10 years of your career, my belief is, is that you really need to understand Brazil, India, Russia, or China. Yeah. Whether that is by working with a company that's entering into those markets and you taking the risk to go be part of that market entry team, whether you're fortunate enough to have grown up there and understand those cultures. When I came out of school, it was about American products being moved into Europe. Mm-hmm. So I made sure I spoke French. I made sure in the first 10 years of my career that I understood international clients, much like you, Liz. Mm-hmm. You obviously have spent a lot of time with global folks. And so today, if somebody asked me how to introduce a product into Brazil, I wouldn't know how to do it except for what I've learned from our customers. 
But I think that's really important. Those are going to be the places where people buy things. And whether we like it or not, what we make on this earth is things for people to buy. <laughs> and so understanding those markets, and if, like I said, if you're fortunate enough to have grown up there, then I think that's something that you should bring as a really big attribute to any kind of career that you have, because certainly the people that work with my teams who understand India and China and Brazil and Russia, that, that's where the buying power is going to be. I agree. I, as a matter of fact, with Accenture, we've just um, changed our management uh, promotion such that if you're going to raise, get all the way up to our sort of top level, you have to have done some, you know, tour of duty in one of those countries. And, you know, it's, it's hard. I, and I would add to this that, you know, if you're not natively from there, if you're from here or Western market, that you should figure out a way to actually go and live there, right? Yeah. You know, especially when you're younger, when it's a little easier. But um, when your kids aren't arguing about you about I can't leave high school because right. I want to graduate with my friends. Right, know? exactly. Or, or your <laughs> spouse that, or right? your significant other doesn't want to go. But it's fascinating. And I agree with you. The, the other countries that we see, too, are Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just kicked up quite a, a bit of work in Mexico. And then Africa. Oh, yeah. Huge and interesting market going on right there. It's a, one of the... Guys, a guy who worked for me for several years, top guy, just sent me a note today and say he's moving to Sierra Leone. I'm like, where? You know, what are you doing in Sierra Leone? And he had been doing some not-for-profit work over there, and then he's starting up a business over there. Canadian guy. So, uh, you know, maybe the hockey team gave him the big inspiration. I don't know. But um, yeah. I just thought that was a – because it just makes me think of Blood Diamond. I'm like, why would you want to go there? But I'm sure there's more than, than Blood Diamond going on. You know, that just ages me. So um, keep going on teams. And in terms of um, – I want to pick up on the social networking because I, I think uh, one thing that we struggle with at Accenture and our clients are struggling with that I bet, I bet lots of you have answers to that I'd love to hear is, you know, how do you monetize this whole social networking thing and how is it going to change how we work with our customers and how they, you know, how we work with our employees and how we do development and everything else? What have you seen so far? There's, I think there's something out there that we need some help with. We being Accenture, maybe, well, maybe you... we should ask them and turn it over to question time. Yeah. Anybody <laughs> want to take take a, a crack at that? The question is social networking. So Facebook, LinkedIn, Plexo, all of these uh, technologies that everybody's using sort of on the side. If you come to work at Accenture, I don't know about Salesforce, and you start up day one, you know, you don't. We don't assign you a Facebook account. We assign you an email account, right? Mm-hmm. And we have all of our own internal infrastructure that has its own internal sort of Facebook-like thing, but it is not Facebook. It's not as easy to use, and we, I keep telling our technology guys, dudes, this is, this is dumb. You know, go get somebody we just hired to put it together, right? But, um, you know, because it's just not, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's created by somebody who's too old. Yeah. And, you know, and I see, I see everybody that's joining Accenture. I see my daughter who's in college using it all the time. There's some power there that is going to... Either we can use it to drive faster innovation or something, but you got to be able to think about it in terms of how does AT&T monetize that. Yes? So at ETL, we actually had a pretty interesting, um, I think it was affiliated with ETL, but Clara Shai, who used to work at Salesforce, um, I used to work at Salesforce too, Uh, she she came in to talk about her book, The Facebook Era, Uh and basically uh, sort of the premise, I think, was how to do things like hyper-targeting, so being able to reach markets like through Facebook where you can, at a very granular level, decide what types of interests they're going to have that you want to go after, if this is a business-to-consumer type of thing. And you can do the same thing in, in other ways for business-to-business, but I think it's about 
targeting specific sets of people, and that's one of the one of the ways. Um, okay. And, and I think LinkedIn has another model, which is they do the advertising like Facebook, but they also have paid subscriptions uh, for recruiters and other recruiting tools that that's there's two other sources of revenue. Okay. Great answer. Yeah. What do you think? I think that um, we're in a new level of sharing and a new level that's of transparency. Great, yeah. And yes, so, that is so when true. we talk about teams and the rest of it, we talk about it from, well, let's go achieve this common goal. But now we're kind of, we're also, I mean, that used to be the way we always thought about it. The goal was the galvanizing item for the team. And I think there's <laughs> something that's really changing um, because communication is transparent and the rest of it, and people really want to share, and other people want to be the recipients of that sharing, and this share thing is going to really uh, change a lot. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to the entrepreneur. Now, Salesforce, I mean, I've spent a lot of time working with your guys. I mean, talk about a great entrepreneurial company and just ideas and your product releases and things. What's, what is Mark doing to keep you guys ignited and excited and, and moving that whole platform forward, the force, cloud, you know, nobody believed you at first, now it's caught on. I can remember talking to some of my enterprise clients, oh, we'll never use that. I'm like, yes, you will. Why wouldn't you? It's so much cheaper. It's so much better, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think it is? I think that anything that, a I, I, couple of principles, and it's not, okay. a, I mean, it's not a mark answer, right? Okay. I mean, this is going to be, because I'm not doing an advertisement for Salesforce uh, by any means. Uh, you can come hear me do one of those some other day. Um, I think that there's magic and simplicity. And I know John Seely Brown is when he, if you guys come to the course next quarter or if you get a chance to watch him, he has long been a firm believer in this. When you make things simple, you make them simple to use, you make them simple to um, deliver value, you make things simple, people will use them. Look at the iPhone. It's simple, right? I mean, there's lots of things that are, you know, when cappuccino makers, you know, you had to like, grind the stuff yourself, you know, I mean, you had, you wouldn't use one, you wouldn't buy one for your house, but if it's a one press of a button, man, you turn into a cappuccino fan pretty fast, right? So I think there's something to do with this simplicity. There's a, a relationship between innovation and simplicity. And I think that's been borne out over and over again in the tech industry, right? So if you think about what started mini computers, well, when we first started and we thought we wanted to make mini computers and we had Silicon Valley that first started, right? Well, we need to be able to make circuit boards. We couldn't make circuit boards the old way because there weren't tools to do it fast enough. So we started with computer-aided um, CAE and, and uh, CAD CAM. And as soon as we made that simple and deliverable on a PC from AutoCAD and others, then, oh, by the way, now mini computers and, and silicon boards and the rest of that took off. But it was the making it simple, the simplification right. piece. So I think a big piece of innovation and simplification goes together. And we really focus on that at work, and we uh, focus on you know, really delivering um, ease of use and that being a big uh, driver. You know, and I would add uh, to your prior point about writing, uh, because if somebody were to say to me, you know, what's the, you know, What's your best advice about you know pitching a new idea or whatever? Like, you got to be able to get it to like a nanosecond of a concise statement of what you do, right? And being able to write well and being able to use the written language and spoken language correctly to be concise, and then being able to keep it simple mm -hmm. is very very important. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it it's Mark hard. Twain who said, "Right, I'm writing you a long letter because I don't have the time to write you a short one." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, it's a lot harder than you think. Yeah. So, should we get some questions? Absolutely. I think we're probably about time for that. Absolutely. So. Uh, oh, hi. Hi. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm Steve Blank. Uh, I teach a class that surrounds uh, ETL called the uh, Spirit of Entrepreneurship. Uh, raise your hand if you're uh, in my class. Uh, 
And, oh, uh, wow. and you'll be visiting us after class, so uh, uh, Liz and Polly will uh, be graciously giving us uh, their time as well. So uh, w since you're coming, I'll just reserve one question for each of you here and then open it up. And uh, Liz, I'm actually going to start with you. Okay. And, and uh, as I understood, you spend time in Silicon Valley, but your cus customers are the global 200, is they that are. correct? Yeah. So let me understand, given your career, what do you wish startups knew that they always get wrong about Accenture's role and what big companies are looking for and what startups you're oh. just tired of saying for the 400th time, guys, if you only knew, do this. Am I, is the question clear? Yes, it's easy. There's a very easy answer. Um, unless you have an incredibly simple disruptive technology that is so far out there that people get it and understand it very quickly, most, and there's a few of those, right? Um, the problem that most startups have when they take their uh, product or their service to big companies is that the big company cannot figure out, and I'll be very honest here, how to make it mundane enough to make it uh, interoperate with all the complexity that they have. So you may have the best social networking tool or the best piece of computer technology or the best piece of network equipment to run on one of Cisco's networks or Verizon's networks. But again, if it doesn't work with all of their other stuff and you can't explain how it's going to do it, it's just too hard. I mean, there's so many things that they would love to do, but it's frankly just too hard. It takes too long. And they're, remember, they're on a quarter to quarter, deliver income, deliver to their shareholders, deliver dividends. I mean, just dividends alone. And the dividend mentality drives all kinds of what you might think is not the best behavior, right, in terms of integrating technology. So it really, it has to be, you have to get it so it's, you know, you can prove it in, in larger and larger and larger installments or engagements before it can be adopted. Great. No, so. Very helpful. Uh, and Polly, uh, uh -huh. my first one for you. And um, you alluded to this, uh, talking about your career, about big companies and startups as well. And it uh, sounded like, um, I think it was at Alpha Blocks, the timing was just unfortunate because of the, the internet bubble collapsing. But um, was there some culture shock um, going into a startup of that small size for you as CEO for the first time uh, that it was just like, whoa, you know, I wish, <laughs> I wish I got the manual before, like I would have shown up here and every rock I turned over was, was there some of that there? And if so, um, what was the generic surprise? Well, I think it's kind of hard because you, I, I did a few things at once. Um, size is one thing, but that's kind of um, relatively easy to do if you don't think of yourself and you don't define your, um, what you want to do in terms of the number of people that work for you. So if you're starting new ideas in a big company, you always start with a very small team. You don't build a successful building with six architects. You build a successful building with one architect. And I think that's a really important uh, point. So. The smallness wasn't that big of a thing. I think for me, um, I had to learn a lot of things as the CEO. So one of them was um, motivating development. You have a set of DNA yourself. And one of the things that I would say that um, you kind of learn over your career is to assess what your DNA is. Mine is sales and marketing. And I say them in that order because that's me. Other people's are uh, engineering or product development. Others might be, you know, um, finance. 
And so understanding what's your DNA, that's what I call it, in other words, there's a couple of things that happen there. You make every decision, and the older you get, you hone it down because you've been successful. And you hone it down to a smaller and smaller lens that you start to look at every problem with. This is like human nature. And you have to continually, in entrepreneurialism or in innovation, to continue to make that lens be wider. But you have to remember that you always are looking at a problem through the eyes of your DNA. When a customer says no or something doesn't work, I immediately go to the how could we fix it, what could we do to convince them. That's my DNA. Other people that I ended up having to lead would basically say, oh, well, we need to go back and fix the product and let me re-engineer it and all those kinds of things. So I think the big thing, that, that was a big, that was a personal cultural thing around being the CEO and leading all disciplines towards a single target made me really stop and say, what do I need to add to me? And when I say add to me, you can't add to yourself. Like you just can't all of a sudden become a product development person. What you need to do is add to your team the DNA of the other roles that are important to go forward. So first it was this kind of self-assessment coming from leading successful sales and marketing teams in some of the biggest, fastest growing companies in the world and small companies. And um, then, so that was one. And then second of all was this, how do I build the team? And then the final thing was, it was a really big experience, learning experience for me, was um, the relationship between the CEO and the board. And I'll, I actually, I'm very upfront with this. I actually was very upfront with it with Tom once in a counseling session that I asked him to come talk to me about this. It was very, very difficult for me not to think about the money that people invested in Alphablocks under my tutelage as a loan. It was really hard for me. I mean, I was in my 40s. And I had been in many successful companies. And I just still emotionally myself I wasn't looking at it as investment at risk versus investing that money, uh, that I was a better risk for that investor to take than it was, Polly, I'm lending you this money. Go make it be successful. It was really interesting. I, I don't know why I had such a hard time with it, but you asked me a personal question, I'll give you a personal answer. But that's, oh, that's okay. it. That's great. Okay, then I won't ask you any more here. <laughs> we'll save them the for audience this. The audience can do it. Forward. We'll save Very them for one. Right, we'll open it up Come to on, the guys. audience. and just uh, So questions and uh, Polly and uh, Liz, just yeah. you pick. So how, how would you view what you did as CEO differently if you were being lent money as opposed to being invested in? Um, well, actually, I took over the company, so it wasn't, I, I mean, I didn't start it. Um, so I think um, lent the money. I don't think I would have done anything. Um, I actually, actually, I think I would have, I probably would have taken more risk in certain areas um, around, um, I think I would have invested, I would have had a very serious argument with the board about doubling the development team when we started to get traction in order to create faster innovation. And I allowed them to push me into uh, drive the sales team. So they gravitated towards my DNA, and I should have actually pushed back on them. And if I had thought about it more in terms of making an argument to them that this was the best return on their investment and looked at it as a, as a, 
5x, 10x kind of a, a conversation and thought it through that way, I think I would have made a different decision around that before being forced to make some hard choices due to you know, financial restrictions and the rest of it. Yeah. Um, what are your, uh, generally speaking, when you're opening a new location in a new country, what are the <coughs> preconditions that you'd like to have fulfilled before investing significantly? Oh, well, that's a good question for you, Liz. Yeah, so the question was, um, what are the conditions or the prerequisites that we look at before opening a new market or a new country? Um, gosh, so first and foremost, as we look at, is there economic viability, right? Is there enough uh, potential money? So we do just a market assessment, just like you've all probably learned how to do in a, in a econ class or a strategy class. Um, I think a lot of it is, do we, will we have the talent? Is there going to be local talent there? And how many people will we have to import? And, you know, years ago, um, we used to send, I think you probably did this too, you used to see everybody from the U.S. or Europe going to other places. And that's still true uh, to a large part where you'll send people who have the experience from Western markets into the newer emerging markets. But I think the key difference that we see now is that you, you have to have a strategy going in to figure out how you're going to build the local market talent, and I can't underestimate that because some of these new markets have such different regulations, and they're they're not all democracies, right? And so you have to be able to figure out how to work around that. There's a lot of you know government structures and things, and companies that are successful figure that out fairly quickly. And it's usually by harnessing the best local talent and finding it. What do you think? Um, I actually was thinking about it in the inverse too. You know, okay. that might be a different way to think about it. Um, I also think it's where things don't live. So I don't know, I can, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of the company, but you know, obviously clean water is a big issue in an awful lot of the, you know, of the world. And so we would have to think about how to do that without electricity, how to go back to some kind of hand pump, but then the absolutely who's gonna run it as a talent example. Right. So the guys that made those wells where it's actually a seesaw for the kids to play on, and now they have versions of them where it's an exercise bike for people to use yeah. to get into health and, and pregnant and you know people who are you know are have had a baby now to get back into shape and thinking about the only person that works in the home and is interested in caring in the family in a lot of societies around the world today where clean water is an issue is the mother right. and the women in the family so i actually think there's kind of this inverse uh Scarcity is actually playing an interesting role in a lot of entrepreneurialism, you know, also. So I think that's kind of an interesting, maybe that's a, a little bit of a different lens to, mm -hmm. to think about it. But I, I, you know, it seems intuitively obvious when you're planting a seed, but maybe it doesn't like to grow something and there's no water. But maybe it's not around, you know, these other things about who's actually going to be your labor pool and where's the scarcity. And you can make just as much money in an area where you enter a market that has the attributes of scarcity than you make in a market where it has the, absent, uh, the uh, attributes of, of resources. That's right. Yeah, and you can lose a lot of money even. Oh, you yeah. Know, I was thinking <laughs> of a client who did a lot of research in one of the emerging markets and just got, um, got the government part of it completely wrong. Yeah. Completely wrong and had to pull out. And it was like multiple billions of, of dollars of investment. Other questions over here? You stressed about uh, customer engagement, and I was kind of curious to know about what is a good place to start a sales career with a startup where you get to engage more with clients because you're a smaller team, or work with a larger organization like Oracle or Salesforce or Cisco where they have very established uh, programs for group and salespeople. 
That's, That's a great, great question. The question was um, uh, sales engagement. What do you think about starting with a startup if you want to have a career in sales? Or what do you think about starting with a large company? I'm not, I don't think there's a magic answer, but I would contrast it with two things. The first one is, is um, in my career over the 30-year period, we, I, have, we, I have watched the cycle run three times. And that cycle is big companies want to expand their sales organizations. They invest in world-class training. They invest in great programs. And if you can catch that cycle, there is nothing like joining a company that's in growth mode in sales and taking the advantage of going to Stanford and getting it for free as part of your job. Right? But if you're in one of these markets where everybody's cutting all their sales training, you know, revenues are down, people are going into cost cutting and the rest of it, then you're not gonna, that's gonna be very, very difficult to find. And in those cases, cutting your teeth and proving that you are entrepreneurial enough to figure out how to sell in those markets and that you, um, you join a small company where you get lots of hits at the bat, or hits at the ball, yeah. that can be a really rewarding experience. Personally, I'll tell you that in my career, um, I actually think that those two cycles have produced very big age gaps, just like I was talking about the focus on writing and the eloquence of being able to actually communicate in a written way. We've seen dives and upturns. So during the last half of the 90s, there were a lot of order takers in the world. And the people who entered into sales organizations in the second half of the 90s, pretty much they made their numbers, they thought they learned how to sell, and they kind of got themselves in a groove. And when we hit the wall in 2002, and then we tried to reinvest in both sales management and in salespeople coming back into the growth cycle that we went through in the middle of the, of the decade, what we found was that there were a whole lot of people who had no idea how to sell in a downturn. They really had a thin veneer of selling skills. They didn't know how to do the basics of account planning and execution and all the things that really become the sales, the skills that you need to be able to sell for anybody. And I would argue that there's a dearth of those in the marketplace today. So, you know, I think I have never been ashamed to be in sales. I actually think that a lot of the reasons why I've ended up where I am and a lot of the growth that you get in a business, um, especially as a female or minority, is to get on the revenue side of the business. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would encourage everybody, you will not get a VC to invest in you the second time around unless you understand the revenue side of the business and the innovation generation piece and how to manage people. And so understanding how to acquire and attract customers and all those things is a very, very important skill for all leadership no matter where you are. You don't have to like it, but you have to have experienced it so you can understand how to lead the people that do that for a living. And have thick skin. Don't forget about that, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got to have thick skins. Getting to know is a very important part of a selling cycle. Yeah. You've got to have no, a customer say know. no. Right, right. Yeah. So um, you talked a lot about no bad ideas, mm -hmm. and you also talked a lot about uh, the value of failure. Mm -hmm. So what happens if someone fails in one of your companies? Someone has a big mistake, big failure. What happens to them? Um, when I was, the, well, I'll tell you, I have a three strikes, or two strikes, three strikes, you're out policy. It's kind of like repeated is a little difficult. Um, I think um, in all the companies that I've been fortunate enough to work in that I really got dedicated to and, and the line got blurred between whether I was working or whether I was enjoying my life, and that's a really important concept. We can talk about that some other, uh, later, but is where 
there was no fear of failure or failure was accepted because no idea was a dumb idea. And I really, I, I cannot, if you are an ideas kind of a person and you really believe that what's make, that's what makes you tick and what makes you happy, then please be sure to check that out with, you know, when you go look for a job because that's really important. I actually left a company because I watched a team that was adjacent to mine fail and when they failed, they were completely dissed in the culture. And I decided that was a culture I didn't want to belong to. And so I made the hard decision that that wasn't the right place for me. So not only did that team leave, but I left. And then basically some other teams dissolved. And that company you know, lost a lot of innovation and the rest of it. So um, you know, when you lose a deal in sales, you fail. You're supposed to sell everything. Every customer is supposed to love your product. All customers are supposed to be successful. But 100% is a really, really, really hard thing. And if you're at 100%, you either are doing one of two things. You're not competing in every deal, and you're not competing in all market share that's available to you, or you aren't challenging yourself enough. So one of two things is happening. Your company doesn't, because other people in your industry are growing too. Right? I mean, that's kind of an interesting concept, but you got to think about the pie is right. all the money. Right? And so that's why I, I, I just really think that it's about, I, I personally just couldn't tolerate the culture and left when that happened. Yeah. Do you have an answer for I mean, You've seen a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we take them out, shoot them, they're dead. No, I, no. Um, I survived. Uh, we we kind of have a, um, you know, it depends on the, I mean, I agree. You, uh, we, you know, it's a little different when you're in consulting because the failure is with your client. And, um, you know, that can be very tricky, you know, depending and, you know, because then there's the finger pointing that can go on. But um, a lot of, you know, we try and, and promote sort of safe risk taking and also the ability to um, have some sort of failures. And the failures, you know, it wouldn't be the same, like, um, because you can't really fail with your client and then say, okay, we failed and let's move on. You're going to pay us, right? That doesn't work. Um, but you can jointly <coughs> agree on sort of parameters of sort of good, better, best, right, in terms of levels of where you're going to go. And, and we do encourage that quite a bit. And our, we tend to like to work with clients who are enlightened enough to push themselves mm -hmm. further as well. This past year has been really eye-opening uh, because most of our clients, obviously, we were cutting back and, you know, talking about um, saving money. And we would go in and actually say, you know, we'll save money with you and we'll put our fees at risk. And, you know, but you do that on sort of a measured basis. And we have this sort of culture of if it's the first time that you did, it's very hard to do something brand new um, and get it 100% right the first time. And we encourage people to do that because um, almost 100% of the cases the second time is far better yeah, than the first time. That's right. And so we try and encourage that kind of structure. If you're reckless, especially if you're reckless with somebody else's money, you're going to go. Right. But otherwise, we try and encourage it as well. And we, but more importantly, I mean, I'm in a different role because I'm always out trying to influence our clients. I'm always trying to influence them to have that kind of culture as well. Because, and sometimes it's much harder to do that because a lot of times they're much more risk averse than maybe, maybe we might be. And I think that's... I think that's incumbent upon all of us to have that kind of courage because you see the best successes 
from companies that continue to sort of push the boundaries. Right. I think the other thing is, is that um, for me, I, I tried to figure out when I make good decisions and when I make bad decisions, and it's a batting average. I mean, you don't yeah. bat a thousand, so let's just face it. But I really believe you got to bat over, like you know, you got to bat over 500 yeah. for certain. I mean, and not a baseball analogy, but you know, you really do have to say, okay, when you're presented with a decision, is this a good time? So I kind of have a funny rule of thumb. I am really burnt out by Thursday night. I don't know what it is about working. I kind of like turn on on Sunday because for years I've talked to teams in Asia. And by the way, Asia's already Monday. Right. And so my burnout happens Thursday night. And so on Friday, I kind of, if I'm presented with a decision, I basically always say, you will have the answer before Monday morning when you get when you get to the office you will have it but I really need to like just kinda have a detox period and I can't tell you the number of times that I have written down a decision and thought this is what I wanted to say on Friday that by Sunday morning after having that completely wiped the slate let me think about it from a different lens I came up with a different decision and one which actually turned out to be very successful versus what I would have done which probably would have been an, an okay decision, but wouldn't have hit that great. Or maybe it would have been the wrong decision and we would have had to course yeah, correct. And there you knew your own personal physical look, which is huge. You gotta, you gotta be able yeah. to follow that. I see our, our moderator standing up. Great, well listen, Polly, thank you very much. Oh, oh you guys, that's great. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.